Hello, welcome to Feature in a Short. My name is Justin Joseph Hall, uh, owner of Four Wind Films. Four Wind Films is continuing the tradition of awarding a film that pushed cinema forward the most as an art. The film has to have changed movies in cinema in some way and made a lasting impression on movie makers. This episode goes back to 1910 to 1919. This is our third installment. We've already done the 2010s and 1900s. So this is our award season, and we gather four cinephiles to talk about a decade of filmmaking. For this award, we're not looking exactly what's the best per se. So many other podcasts do that, but we'd rather look for what has endured or changed movies. This podcast is called Feature in a Short, and therefore... Uh, a feature and a short movie must be chosen from our contributing cinephiles list. Uh, you'll hear about 19 movies today from the 1910s. But other than that, if a piece contains moving images and came out in the decade we're discussing, it is allowed to be in the list. In the 2010s, we gave it to The Act of Killing by Joshua Oppenheimer. And last year, we awarded Emil Cole's Phantasmagory. And before we get to our nominees, we must understand what was going on during cinema during that time. In order to consider which movie pushed art form forward the most in a 10-year span. I'm not a film historian, but luckily we had David Kine of the Niles Film Museum in Fremont, California, in the heart of Silicon Valley, write us a summary of the decade. So uh, these are David Kine's words. The motion picture industry's third decade from 1910 to 1919 was transformational. After the nickel theater craze, by 1910, there were 12,000 Nickelodeons, a program of up to 45 minutes that repeated continuously for 12 hours or more. Mostly, they occurred in the big cities where walking traffic could support them. By 1919, the movie theater count was up to 17,000, so an increase of 5,000 in the decade. Film exchanges in 1910, where films were rented to theaters, operated in a chaotic manner, trying to keep up with the demand. The cutthroat competition was out of control with popular films being duplicated without authorization and badly worn prints that should have been trashed, being passed off to theaters, desperate to show anything. The Motion Picture Patents Company, comprising of pioneer film companies Edison, Biograph, Vitagraph, Kalem, they tried to stabilize the system by setting up a new, more efficient distribution system. Before 1910, moviegoers became familiar with the various film producing companies but the actors, directors, writers, and cinematographers were mostly anonymous. That changed in 1910, when, by public demand, the names of the actors started to be advertised. As the film companies feared, the salaries of the actors and their co-workers began to increase. A typical salary in 1909 was $25 a week. At the beginning of 1915, $200 a week wasn't unusual. And at the top were Mary Pickford at $1,000 a week for famous players Lasky, and Charlie Chaplin making $1,250 a week at SNA. By 1916, those two stars were both making $10,000 a week. Many of the great directors of the talkies, like John Ford, Cecil B. DeMille, Raoul Walsh, Alan Dwan, Clarence Brown, King Vidor, and Victor Fleming got their start in the 1910s. Some of the great cinematographers like Arthur Miller, Virgil Miller, Victor Milner, John F. Seitz, Roly Tothero, Harold Rawson and Charles Rocher worked for decades after their start in the 1910s. Among others, movie comedians Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and Harold Lloyd, Stan Laurel, and Oliver Hardy, before they were a team, made their first films in the decade as well. 
The transition from a standard one reel short film to multiple reels of five or more took off in 1912 and became widespread in 1914. At the end of the decade, the five reel feature was dominant. More expensive films meant bigger theaters were needed to show and make a profit due to higher rental fees. The typical Nickelodeon with 300 seats became less profitable than newer movie palaces of 1,000 seats or more. The general film company exchanges were ideal for the Nickelodeons, changing their one and two reel programs every day, but were slow in figuring out the feature film distribution network. The independents embraced the feature film and thrived. The patents company members faltered by 1915, and lawsuits broke up their attempted monopoly of the business. By 1918, all of the pioneers, except for Vitagraph, had closed their doors. Vitagraph was bought out by the Warners in 1925, the next decade. The rising independents included Fox, Universal, Metro, United Artists, and Paramount, companies that are still around today. The technical end of filmmaking saw major advances. Filmmakers experimented with color, 3D, and sound in the 1910s, but none of these were perfected until later. Special effects were increasingly used thanks to a large part of Bell and Howell's 2709 motion picture camera, which in 1912 produced the steadiest film movement ever made. Multiple exposures, dissolves, split screens, and traveling mats, similar to modern green screen effects, were regularly being used but done in camera. Editing became more complicated, with scenes formally being taken in one shot, routinely using close-ups, two shots, reverse angles, and rapid cutting. The Society of Motion Picture Engineers was formed in 1916 to set the technical standards of film equipment, design, and theater projection. The Static Club on the West Coast and the Cinema Camera Club on the East Coast were the first cinematographers associations to be formed. They combined in 1919 as the American Society of Cinematographers is still strongly active today. Production budgets increased over the, the decade from $1,000 to $5,000 to even $10,000 or more. And yeah, $10,000 in 1919 is now $161,000 in 2022. So still much lower budget than modern even independent films. Enormous sets were built for expensive productions like the Babylon set for Intolerance in 1916 and the Monte Carlo set for Foolish Wives in 1919. Foolish Wives was touted as having a million dollar budget. The highest grossing film was Birth of a Nation in 1915, bringing in untold millions. The first studios in the United States were located in New York City, Philadelphia, and Chicago. But by 1919, there were more studios in Hollywood than on the East Coast. By 1919, motion pictures developed a style and complexity that is still recognizable today. Okay, so that brings us here um, to the live, exciting version of Feature in a Short, the 1910s Fresh Air Award. Actually, it is one of my least favorite decades. I have to admit, I've always wanted to force myself to go a little bit deeper into this area of silent movies. And I can say um, the best of my research was led by my fellow cinephiles that are here today with me. Our first cinephile is not a stranger to the show. She was our first appointed contributor on the podcast, and she was also a part of the Fresh Air Awards last year as one of the panelists. 
Elizabeth Chatelaine has produced and directed several documentary and narrative shorts, including The Lost Girl, winner of the Ruth Landfield Award for Women Filmmakers. Her films have screened at festivals across the globe, including South by Southwest, Interfilm Berlin, and Uppsala International Short Film Festival. Her editing credits include programs for Disney+, Plus, PBS, and the award-winning series Axios on HBO. Please say hello, Beth. Hello. Our next panelist is Kevin Hinman. He's a fiction writer and rapper under the name of Special to Death. Check it out online. He loves movies and lives with his fiance and fat cat Thomas in Long Beach, California. Thank you for joining us from the West Coast, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to sit here and talk uh, weird, obscure films with everybody. Jason Tucker is a former podcaster with the Film Confessional podcast. Maybe you guys know it. And he graduated from the University of Minnesota uh, along with myself and our fellow uh, sound recordist that is there in the room with Jason with a degree in film studies. He also runs science fiction conventions in his spare time and has been loving cinema for the first half of the 20th century since he was a small child, watching Our Gang and Laurel and Hardy shorts on weekend television. Hey, Jason. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to participate and talk about my love for silent cinema and especially for this decade. Excellent. So thank you guys so much for exploring this with me. Um, as for the rules, each of us panelists will nominate five films in total. Each of us will take turns presenting one at a time. And then when we're done, each of the panelists will have five nominations. The other panelists will rank vote the movie that they think should move on to the final round from the other panelists' five nominations. So each panelist will have one film in the final round. We will then give our closing arguments for who should win and rank these last four films. From this, the Fresh Air Award will have been selected. So, without further ado, let us begin. Beth, do you want to start us off with your first nomination? Okay, so one of them that I chose was called A Man There Was. And it's a Swedish film actually based on a Norwegian poem. What really made this one different for me is that I felt like the cinematography and the way in which things were framed were so creatively done. And you could tell that it wasn't just the cinematographer, but that it was the director um, who was thinking about, you know, where is the actor in the framing? Where is the environment? This director utilized the environment as like another character or as like the outpouring of this character's inner feelings. One of the things that I thought was interesting uh, was the interest in how inner titles are used. Um, one with the use of only poetic inner titles and then sort of also pairing down when inner titles are absolutely necessary. So there's a scene when he is confronted again with the captain that caused all of his troubles. And instead of having some sort of text title about it, you get a flashback to their first meeting instead. This was a film that was on my watch list for quite some time. So I was really happy to have a reason to watch it. And it was actually a lot tougher to watch than I thought it would be. 
Um, it, I mean, it's beautiful. And technically speaking, I, I can only imagine how difficult it was at the time. One thing that I thought was interesting that I read about, Victor Soystrom came about six years after this movie was made to the United States to work for um, Louis B. Mayer, who would create MGM stu- Studios in 1924. And he never really actually made a transition to sound films, but he had quite um, the silent film career. Kevin, do you want to move on onto your first choice? I'm, I'm going to start with Charlie Chaplin's the, A Dog's Life from 1918. It stars Charlie Chaplin, of course, in Edna Proviance. Um, this was Charlie Chaplin's first film with the production company First National. This company allowed him way more freedom over his film's production schedule. Before that, he felt Mutual was really stifling his creativity, especially with their insistence that he just flip movies constantly. The plot is pretty simple. In it, uh, Charlie's tramp character uh, struggles to find work and also befriends a scrappy dog. However, why I think this film is really important is it bridged the gap between Chaplin's one and two real slapstick shorts and his more sophisticated features that would come. And especially what I'm thinking about is the movie feels like a dry run for the kid. The first film in which all of Chaplin's modern sensibilities, humor, pathos, melancholic naivety are in full command. In fact, regarding The Dog's Life, there was a French critic, uh, Louis Duluc, who called it cinema's first total work of art. The film is also really incredibly funny. There are some really great gags, including um, Chaplin sticking his arms through a passed out man's uh, sleeves and acting as his arms um, in a conversation with another person. Like, they're some of the best gags of the 1910s era favorite. of Chaplin, in my opinion. I feel like a lot of his things, when you watch one of his films, a lot of them are very similar. This romantic association with a girl comes into the picture and it changes everything. I mean, it's a staple of romantic comedies everywhere. And Charlie Chaplin is doing comedies, but he's always doing a romantic comedy. That's also really important. He craved being able to tell the story how he wanted. Not a lot of people can do the business side and and be an amazing artist, but he he was a great businessman on, on top of that. He he knew how to control his, his art and his distribution. Look at the editing, and the editing is, like, so tight. You know, some of these features were stumbling, and, like, in this film, I didn't feel like that. So many of the sequences in it you end up seeing in kind of clips of his work, like the rolling back and forth under the fence. Anytime you, like, see a compilation of Chaplin's work, that's one of the bits that gets included. Yeah, I think also another point um, that was made is that, you know, the use of inner titles. It's like, you almost don't need inner titles because you can just, you know what's happening. Because he was such a great live performer as yeah. well. You know, well, he it's could so do physical. Jason, what's, what's your first nomination? Uh, I am going to um, talk about uh, one from the very beginning of the decade, 1910, the first screen adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It was lost for decades afterwards, and then it was uncovered and restored in the latter half of the 20th century. You know, this was made by the Edison Studio, and it is a very different take on the story. The creation of the monster is, uh, for the time, it feels really groundbreaking. It's 
also much more psychological. There's a lot of shots that are seen from uh, mirrors. But, and you know, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, Jay Searle Dolly, he was the director of the film, and he eventually went for Edison and started uh, the West Coast version of the Edison Studios. What's interesting about this is he seems to really be from the school of George Millay, where taking that fantastical imagery and all of those wonderful in-camera tricks and putting it towards a real story and trying to tell something with uh, psychological depth and continuity. Yeah, I, I, you can't help but see the influence of Millier uh, in this and, and see that advance from the late 1890s, early 1900s of the work that Millier did and then um, what Dolly then expanded on um, where it didn't feel so stage bound. Um, It felt more fluid in transitioning between scenes and sets, but still retained uh, some of the magical qualities that Melier introduced. To try to adapt an entire novel into like 10 minutes is um, pretty incredible. But yeah, also that like, moving into the interior of the human mind, which I think, you know, is is new territory. Very fascinating. So let's start out with um, one of the movies that I think it was one of the last ones that I watched before I put in my nominations. It's by Lois Weber. This movie is titled Suspense. It is aptly titled. There's never been as much tension when you're sitting in a theater than when there is a robber in the house with a baby and a mother uh, defenseless, and he gets closer and closer. And that's basically what this film is. I think it's amazing. It's one of the most uh, suspense films that I've seen. I didn't know that Lois Weber also stars in the film as well. And so um, she also presented all these split screens, which had been done before in Denmark, but it's relatively new. And she uses it uh, in this storytelling, showing how, how suspense can be used in film. Uh, which is like my favorite feeling being in the theater. All of the things that Weber is doing here uh, predate a lot of the things that Griffith is held for. Whereas, you know, people talk about how groundbreaking D.W. Griffith was. We had a female filmmaker doing this beforehand. And as you say, you know, you take film studies classes and they talk about Griffith, but you don't hear about Lois Weber. I probably talked to... 15, 20 people, and probably half of them are like, what? How come you're not talking about D.W. Griffith? And it's like, that's not pushing film forward. That's pushing film back from before when film started to for the Civil War, and especially if you're talking about Birth of a Nation. That's the film that they always want to talk about. To me, it doesn't make any sense. I was totally unprepared for what I saw in Birth of a Nation. It was just... Because it's unforgivable. It really is. And I would actually say that I think it's, um, you know, the reason why Griffith is uh, talked about more over Weber is, um, well, for one thing, there is much more Griffith output still available than Weber, but also less that it's because Griffith was a white supremacist and and more just that he was male. Um, Yeah, historically speaking, female filmmakers are mostly forgotten from the first half of the 20th century. Weber was actually elected as the mayor of Universal City when uh, it first was formed. Uh, It was a very close contest, and she was one of the big-time directors at the time. 
I just want to bring up the incredible moment where the man is in the street and gets hit by the car. Uh, like, so good. It, that that shot, I, I mean, I, I have to say that if there is one thing that I'm like, why did she do that? You couldn't drive around him if you were in that much of a hurry? or <laughs> That was the one spot that I think it took me a little bit out of it. Yeah, it adds some drama or whatever. And they say it's one of the first car chase scenes in film history as well. So. My second pick is Richard Oswald's Different from the Others, 1919, starring Conrad Veidt and Fritz Schultz. Roger Ebert once called cinema an empathy machine, and I think this is where Different from the Others truly feels like a groundbreaking movie. It was made in this hiccup of time between world wars when censorship was lifted in Germany. Um, the movie would actually be banned the year after it was made. It deals with a homosexual couple who's blackmailed and harassed. What I think is really astounding about the movie is that it feels progressive even by today's standards, showing complexities around homosexual, lesbian, cross-dressing, and non-binary people. For instance, Kurt's sister in the film goes from being infatuated with Paul to becoming essentially his gay ally. In addition to that, like, Conrad... Veidt just gives an incredibly expressive performance. It's no wonder that he became such a gigantic star in some of the big films of the 20s. He is absolutely acting circles around everybody else in the movie. And do you just want to go through some of his major roles in the future? Well, the big one for me that comes to mind is The Man Who Laughed. I mean, you know, that's a good one to mention. (laughs) Yeah, I love The Man Who Laughed. Uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is oh, yeah, perhaps of course, of course. famous yeah. role as he Thank plays you. the somnambulist. <laughs> Thank you. Of course I would forget that huge. It also has so many other great aspects to it, just as far as themes and characters and all of that. Hirschfeld is the co-writer. Um, and Magnus I think, Hirschfeld, yes. Okay, so yeah, and so he was gay, Jewish sexologist, and so he wanted to make a lot of these movies, and this is obviously the most successful, but he actually made a whole bunch of other movies like this explaining the way people are different with their sexuality. But it was all thrown away by the Nazis because he's German, and Nazis tried to throw away all of his work, including this. Uh, luckily, they found a print many years later, and that's why it's coming back now. But it is so far ahead of its time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been over 100 years since this has come out. And while, you know, you'd like to think that we're in, and we are in a much different world now, um, it's still the same battles that are being fought. And as a gay man, you know, this is uh, something that um, I still deal with in terms of where you you constantly second guess yourself, people who are blackmailed. Um, that, That was the big thing in it was the idea of, this is something that someone can be blackmailed over. And again, that's something that is still very prominent, especially among GLBT teenagers, is um, suicide amongst that demographic. And, you know, it's it's been 100 years and we're still fighting the same things that Hirschfeld was trying to fight against with this film. And I think it's important to say, too, this was an educational film. Um, they found very little contemporary support for this film. 
Uh, screenings were restricted. It was only for medical practitioners and lawyers. So changing gears a little bit. The next one that I will talk about, Gertie the Dinosaur. Like I had watched other animated films that had come out around the same time, but with Gertie the Dinosaur, it was the first time that they utilized keyframes and registration marks. The way in which she moves feels so much more natural. And you can tell that they've done research on the on the anatomy of of the animal and how it would walk. You know, Gertie is essentially the prototype for every single Disney animated creation and essentially every anthropomorphized animal cartoon to follow. Mischievous, lovable, naive, adorable, like everything that you think about when you think about a animal protagonist in a cartoon movie, that's Gertie. There is a a different Gertie the dinosaur directed by John Randolph Bray, who created his own animated stu- animation studio, the Bray Studios, that I think is actually a superior version of this. All filmmakers plagiarize each other in this decade. Back when Melies was doing his stuff, Segundo de Chamon was copying all of his stuff left and right. The stunts were even copied, which is a shame because even just, I think it's a year after the McKay version of Gertie the Dinosaur, but it's, it's actually a lot better. <laughs> and I thought that whole idea, sort of breaking the third wall of talking to the animation and stuff, I, I thought that was so cool. But it makes so much more sense when it is part of the act and he was just doing it live, presenting his stuff on the road. Yeah, because what we're really talking about with those sequences is integrated fantasy into cinema. And so from there, you can see lines not only to other animations, but to complex special effects movies like Lost World or King Kong. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one thing that I thought was interesting about McKay, I guess he refused to do patents for his stuff, like uh, exactly opposite of uh, Edison. There's a great quote of why he didn't patent. And he said, any idiot that wants to make a couple hundred thousand drawings for a hundred feet of film is welcome (laughs) to join the club. (laughs) That's great. Well, do you just want to go on and uh, Jason present the McKay film? Sure. I actually chose... Uh, The Sinking of the Lusitania from a few years later. The Sinking of the Lusitania, the event, I think was 1915. But the film, the short, didn't actually come out until I believe it was 1917 or 1918. um, Just because it took that long for him to do all the drawings. But by that time, he had started doing cell animation. The cell animation, you generally have the backgrounds are drawn on something more opaque and then you have transparent drawings that are photographed over those backgrounds so that you make small changes on the um on the transparent cells and then photograph them over the static backgrounds uh saving you from having to redraw the backgrounds all the time as well the um both both of the shorts the gertie and the lusitania one start as live action And in terms of the sinking of the Lusitania, McKay actually went against his own publisher, Hearst. Hearst was against the U.S. getting into World War I. So McKay was very appalled and outraged at the act of the firing of torpedoes on the Lusitania and sinking it. And so he did all this. This was an independent film, essentially. This short just, it illustrates the horrors of war at a time when the U.S. wasn't even in the war yet. 
because the entire sinking of the Lusitania only took 15 minutes, the movie is almost in real time. This was the longest animation um, up until this time. One of the animated scenes, which again, clearly is a, is a creation by McKay, is a mother disappearing beneath the waves holding an infant in her arms and it's just it's it's a shocking scene you know uh, this is the propaganda part that is really there to evoke emotions in the audience yeah and you see that i think you see that a lot more in this decade than you did previous decades where people are trying to say something with their art they're not just telling stories or doing famous adaptations we'll jump on to the next one the oyster princess it's by ernst lubitsch and it was such a delight when you watch Chaplin films or Lloyd or Buster Keaton, the Oyster Princess is totally different. It's playing off of the farcical nature of the extremely rich and people trying to profit off of them. I mean, it's like, it sounds very common because it is a common tale and it's told with such style. But the way that he uses close-ups to show people's reactions in a comedic effect and to do portraits the way that he did, you know, they're not playing off physical gags for the humor. He plays on these rich people's tantrums and the destruction and their childish whims that can be fulfilled because they have all this money. And Lubitsch went on to win an honorary Academy Award in 1946. And I think it is because, you know, he began here and he was already telling, like we talked about, uh, Chaplin and Lois Weber, they know the language of film and they're telling it well and better than some people tell it today. Uh, I was really taken by the composition of the shots. They felt very symmetrical and like he was trying to mirror the two sides of the, a lot of the shots. Um, and also how, never thought of Lubitsch as an expressionist film, but the kind of almost grotesqueness of a lot of the close-ups was very captivating for me. You know, now we're used to a lot more widescreen after television came out. Filmmakers wanted to differentiate themselves from television. They got away from the 4x3 format, but obviously that's mainly what we're, we're shooting in now. And the symmetry really works well within a square shot, and he finds that. He knows a way to make you look at what he wants you to look at. It definitely feels sort of like the predecessor of directors like Jacques Tati or even Wes Anderson, in which how something is filmed is an essential part of what makes it funny. And it reminds me of the golden age of Hollywood where they would change lighting for the close-up to make it different. You know, he zoomed in for these close-ups and it wasn't necessarily a match on action all the time. I love the joke where he borrows money and it goes through the hands of each one of the men and each man just pilfers a little bit of the money. So by the time mm -hmm. he gets it, there's hardly any. That was that was great. And I think he's really adept at directing actors, like large groups. With all those and, servants and everybody walking through. Yeah, yeah, and like use the entire space using all of the depth and being able to uh, move around all these different people. Jason, do you want to go on and do uh, your next one as well? Sure. I will go back to one from 1912. Falling Leaves by Alice Guy Blachet. It's a bit of melodrama. It's based on an O. Henry poem, and it was one of the ones that she filmed after she had left France and come to the U.S. Uh, she was working for Solax, and it's a just a beautiful short little film about a small girl who she overhears the doctor say that her sister will only live until the last leaf falls. So after going to bed one night, she goes out to the garden and starts tying the leaves on the trees to prevent her sister from dying. 
and she's witnessed doing this by a passing doctor who has discovered a cure for consumption. But it just it, it's such a charming little film. And Alice Guy Blachet, like Lois Weber, for most of the 20th century, was mostly forgotten. And in fact, um, a lot of her films were misattributed to her husband for decades. She uh, wrote, shot, performed in, directed. She did everything. Again, it, it moves past the stage-bound um, stuff of earlier filmmakers. Um, you have different sets. You have different angles. You don't have really have much in the way of close-ups, but um, you have a lot of just great performances in this short film. Just four years after... This film was made, Falling Leaves. People don't people don't know this, but she was the highest paid studio director in the U.S. It's unbelievable that she dropped off the map after that. I mean, she she is an absolute staple in U.S. cinema history. Again, it was like a simple idea, but it really like tugged on the heartstrings as far as like the idea of like what would a kid do. All right, my next pick is South. 1919, um, about the Ernest Shackleton expedition, directed by Frank Hurley, who was also a crew member on the expedition. It's a early feature documentary about Ernest Shackleton's failed expedition to the South Pole. It has all the components of a contemporary nonfiction narrative. Because Frank Hurley is also a crew member, and he's always where the action is, and he's continuously positioning himself on the ship or wherever he needs to be to be in the most exciting place, and he has access to everything. So there are scenes where he's dangling over the bow of the boat. There are scenes where he's directly in front of the boat as it's trying to break through ice. There are scenes where he's on a dog sled, um, and then it makes for an incredibly dynamic first half of the film. Due to the nature of the expedition, the ship ended up sinking. So once the ship sank, the footage was incredibly limited. And Frank Hurley didn't actually accompany Ernest Shackleton um, when he left on his rescue mission to find help for the crew that was stranded. However, what it actually did with the editing of the finished film, um, which actually incorporates stills and paintings, as well as footage of rare animals at the time uh, helps to fill in the narrative gaps and make it a cohesive and entertaining picture. Um, the final film, as we see it, accompanied Ernest Shackleton on his lecture rounds and was used to bring in crowds to his lectures. And so especially with something about, you know, showing all the different animals in their native habitats, that would have been something, would have been a real treat for people to pull them in. I can't say how much I enjoyed this pick as well, because Hurley is a very interesting character alone. Before he was famous, he ran away from home for two years, I think when he was 13 or something like that. And then he ended up buying a camera when he was 17, and he taught himself how to do film eventually. By the age of 23, he went on his first trip to Antarctica. And then this was his second trip with Shackleton. He uses intertitles in the exact opposite way as opposed to what we talked about as a man there was, where they use sparse intertitles and they're very poetic. These are a lot of intertitles telling you exactly what he wants you to know about his trip, which I think was one of the most interesting things about the films is how important these dogs were on the trip how much joy they brought, what they had to do, and how much time that took. And they used so many different styles. They did reshoots and the photographs. 
Yeah. I mean, I was also, I was blown away by this film. Like, I really didn't know that there were any documentaries that came before Nanak of the North that were even close to, like, this caliber of storytelling. The only thing I have to say is, like, I was like, what happened to the dogs? <laughs> like, that was my one, like, I was like, oh, they're probably not saying it because, like. They, some came back. Maybe, but I was like, maybe no, they're not No, none of the it. dogs came back. They had to eat some of the dogs and then they drowned the other dogs. It's really bad. Oh, yeah. They drowned them? They, yeah, because they couldn't bring them, yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, the way he creatively utilizes things like the photographs, like portraits that are painted, you know, um, in order to fill in the blanks is something that, yeah, documentary filmmakers have to figure out how to do now as well, because that is always an issue. Like, you're always trying to figure out how am I going to visually show or tell this story? What I, I, I'm going to have to look for this endurance book, but uh, what I thought was fascinating was the fact that uh, so much footage um, still exists because I would have to imagine that there were some contentious uh, conversations had around what was uh, a priority to take with them on their trek back. Like, you know, if, if it was me, especially at that time, would I be talking about taking back how I don't know how much the film recorded film weighed at that point. But yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm sure like canisters you also wonder too like looking at the birds and stuff you're like hmm do those birds exist anymore like you know oh. beth comes in this conversation talking about killing dogs and birds dying <laughs> well i mean that's what i was thinking about the dogs because the dogs are such a huge they're so adorable in the beginning and then like you don't see any of them like at the end they started yeah. out with a lot of food yeah that's well, why that's the only them, reason why they survived just like yeah. you know yeah i guess they didn't realize they're gonna be out there for nine months or whatever The next one out is one of the most important things that have, has changed movies in the entire history of film, more than any movie in any decade, and that is The Perils of Pauline. It is one of the first serials. It is the first very popular serial. It was immediately copied by Exploits of Elaine, which was also a huge hit, but this is a serial show. It is the precursor to television shows. Yes, they had something like this in radio. Yes, you have storybooks, but there is no doubt of the influence that this had on getting people back into the theater to watch the same storyline with the same characters over and over and over again. Now it's the Marvel Universe. I mean, you see endless viewings of the same actors playing characters you know and love, and people could begin to get attached to these characters, as we do with binging on Netflix. Today, we wouldn't have any of that without uh, the first people who did it. And that was Luis Gasnier and Donald McKenzie, who directed uh, most of the series. Uh, they have the setup story in the pilot, which I think is also interesting. It's fun. It's repetitive. It establishes all the themes well. They have stunts, burning buildings, jumping off boats or getting kicked off boats. The lead actress, Pearl White, was actually paid $250 a week. That was equivalent to today, about $6,970. She performed a lot of her own stunts in, in the series, some of which were quite dangerous. This is where... Television eventually got its foothold. It feels like a sitcom. It's not funny, but it has the same premises of most sitcoms, 70s, 80s, and 90s, I would say. So, I thought it was kind of fascinating that the episodes didn't end on a cliffhanger, um, which was what I was expecting. The how will Pauline escape being tied to the tracks and everything. 
but each episode ended in safety. You could tell that the stunts were so dangerous in real life. I feel like (laughs) it's one of those things no one would allow any of these things to be done ever. Yeah, no way. (laughs) Which makes it fun to watch. You're like, wow. That like, is dangerous. Oh my god! Like, How the hell can you get out of that? Die. <laughs> like that looks no, the like one a real fire. Was, I mean, the, the air balloon. The air that balloon, was the absolutely. one that I was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were there were definitely accidents that happened with stump people in oh, early I'm, cinema. There's a oh documentary god, sure. series called Hollywood that talks about silent film, and you can find it on Amazon. And the episode on stump people talks about how, in various films from the silent era stunt people died um doing these stunts let's go on to your third pick maybe one that i chose that was a little bit unconventional was birth of a flower it's time lapse that's why i chose it because i feel like any time that there's experimentation like with form and the artistic side and the technical side of film i think that it's important and now it's so common like it's something that we see in fiction films and experimental films and everything so i thought it was interesting too because um f percy smith um after this film he quit his job as an educator and went full-time into cinematography and and directing these films about nature and and recording them different ways and this specific time lapse they said that it was very difficult to do because he was very accurate on his timing when he would take the pictures and it was all hand cranked so any movement could ruin the shot he set up alarms i don't know how these alarms worked or anything but he continued on to film different things his microscopic films are um becoming more popular now it felt kind of like a visual version of asmr watching it I really loved it. It was so beautiful, and I'm so glad that someone took the effort to restore it, um, like the print that is just available. And just a brief aside, just it's so prohibitive when you want to see an old film and it looks like absolute trash. So when you do have these restorations of old films, it's like a veil has been lifted, and you can finally see the movie for what it really is for the first time and you don't have to work through you know in the case of now pixelization essentially Mm -hmm. of what we're seeing but um i i i loved the birth of a flower just from a purely visual and emotional standpoint it was truly stunning my next i have to admit a little less enjoyable film it was still decent but um cabiria um by giovanni pastrone it's an italian flick and it is one of the very first epics that uh, people referred to when they were making films in the future. Um, a lot of the filmmakers that we talked about talked about the Kabiria shot, which is a, a, a tracking movement that went more forward and back rather than just tracking to follow action. It made uh, cameras as a part of the film. But that's not even why I'm nominating the film. I am nominating the film because they had an epic set, trapdoors, unforgettable shots, Hundreds of outfitted extras with horses and war attire. The use of towers and giant doors with seemingly hundreds of people pounding to get in. It's just unforgettable. They captured a mob crowd, all from a story from the past. I mean, using the sea, fire, and many other natural elements uh, in addition to the grandiosity of the world. And the adventures that one person could live through throughout their life following somebody who is a slave and ends up not being a slave and part of 
uh, royalty. They even had elephants on set. Uh, the tales seems to reminisce the age-old story of Moses being born as an orphan and becoming a hero of the people. This movie also had its own score. All silent films were not necessarily silent films. This uh, movie had a score arranged by Manlio Matza, who reworked uh, famous pieces for the score, uh, and they actually played it with a large orchestra on the premiere. It was performed only once live but it was performed with a symphony orchestra. And on top of that, this is the first film that was ever played at the White House for President Wilson on the lawn. It was visually stunning, um, you know, and, and it does make you think of other works with enormous sets being built, um, especially Metropolis and Intolerance, where you have just these enormous sets. It's all about spectacle. And I mean, some would argue that most of our big budget blockbusters are all about spectacle over substance. And, you know, this is this is kind of the forerunners of the Marvel movies today, where it really is about what you see on the screen almost more than, you know, the, the character development or the plot or what have you. You know, you're just blown away. And I can only imagine what audiences who, you know, they're, they're used to maybe seeing the, the little slapstick shorts or something and then seeing something like this when they go to the theater. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing, this film was done in 1914. Those other movies were done, I think, in 1927 and 1917, much later. And the directors refer back to this, and they did for a long time. It kind of fell out of film history, I think, partially because Americans wrote a lot of film history. And this was an Italian film. And Scorsese, he got the restoration made, and he really loves this film. I don't love it, but it definitely is a precursor to a lot of other movies. As a, as a bit of trivia, it is responsible for the uh, Babylon sequence in Intolerance. Um, when Griffith was originally making the film, it was really only the um, modern day part of that. And then he, he did a screening of Kabiria and it really affected him. And he thought that he needed to have something to equal the grandiosity of that. So he essentially structured intolerance into the four parts so he could um, highlight the spectacle of of some of those old sequences yeah and he and also his camera movements he's quoted to be using the um, Kabiria shot it's always moving uh, I feel like the camera in Kabiria feels like it's one of the crowd members you know it's constantly weaving through all of the people like it's a person who is just like running through and is seeing all the spectacle as it's happening. It gives us an incredibly kinetic sense to the film. Yeah, it reminds me of the opening scene of Casablanca where, every, like you said, chaotic moving through the crowd, that kind of thing. But to even think that, you know, someone would think it's worth spending this much money on making a film, you know, is groundbreaking in itself. That it's like they have enough belief in the form as not only being art but also entertainment seeing a thousand people up on a screen will never not impress me yeah. i always yeah. love it uh, beth you want to move on to uh, your sure. fourth nomination this isn't spanish though it's oh Portuguese. this is yeah it's portuguese hit you eyes you face just bororu okay there we go so that's um rituals and um festivals festivals or yeah or celebrations of bororu yeah, so um, this is a documentary by Louise Thomas Rice, and um, it could be 
it's thought to be one of the first ethnographic or anthropological um, documentaries. Predates Nanak of the North, which we talked about earlier. Although I have to say in, in this film, I don't see the sort of exploitation that I see in Nanak in the, of the North. And that's why I wanted to bring this one because I felt like it was actually a documentation of what had happened or what was happening. And uh, yeah, I just appreciated how it wasn't, it was observational and it wasn't like he was trying to place a story onto it or his own biases onto it, that he was presenting it again, like as sort of an anthropological documentation, as opposed to Nanak of the North, where he really was trying to manipulate the story. In this film, I felt like he was just trying to share this experience with whoever would be watching the film. So anyway, that's why I chose this one, this Rituace. Uh, yeah, I do agree with you. It is, it's so different from something like Nanook, which really plays up its sort of narrative quality and its cinematic qualities to the detriment of its subjects, maybe. And this is so dispassionate. However, maybe to the detriment of its cinematic qualities. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's very much a slog to watch it, but it is really fun watching them dance like birds. That's really cool. It's almost more fascinating to watch as to what documentarians felt was worthy of being recorded and shot and how they went about shooting those subjects Definitely. than as a historical document of a people at the time. I am going to talk about a movie that I saw uh, when I was at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, the movie is called Rhapsodia Satanica, or Satan's Rhapsody. And um, it is a story about a wealthy elderly woman who is bemoaning her lost youth. And so she makes a deal with Mephisto to regain her lost youth at the cost of her soul. And this film, it's an Italian film that was an example of what they called at the time the diva film. And the lead actress, Lydia Borelli, who was a household name in Italy at the time, apparently. She did a lot of stage work. Her expressive style became an adjective, Borellismo or Borellissimo. So she was so famous that people described people behaving like her as, an, as like her name. You mentioned the score in Kabiria. This film actually came out in, I believe it was 1917, but it was filmed in 1914. And they had gotten a composer to score for it. And it took him so long to work out the score that it took several years for it to actually be presented to audiences. And they actually had to reshoot some scenes um, based on changes he wanted for the score is, is what I've read. But it, it's filmed in Italy. They had a lot of great locations where they could shoot that were very lavish. Plus, it also used uh, something called kinema color, where it was actually shot with not. They didn't just tint afterwards, but they actually shot in very limited color, but in color. Um, and then afterwards, they they did do some um, tinting, not just of the cells, but they did stencil coloring of certain parts of it. 
which just really pop when you see it. And I'm, I'm very lucky that I did get to see it on the big screen. What I actually really liked about it is that it was sort of a twist on the Faust, that it was like a woman that was the main character rather than in the original. And also sort of a Dorian Gray, but like as a woman as, as well. So I don't know. It's great to see a complex female character so early. The thing that was different about this score is that it was synchronized with the film. It wasn't just played along with it but they had exact times. This is really the first soundtrack that was ever created in, you know, 10 years before sound really became something that everybody aspired to. So it's way ahead of its time. And I thought one other thing that was interesting is the director, Nino Auxilia, um, he also did operas and he also did poems. And he was an artist of many different facets. This was one of his last films, I think his second to last film, but he just was always creating stories um, with music. My last nomination oh yeah this one's really fun um it's called the cameraman's revenge and um it is a stop motion picture uh in 1912 that was done and this movie is gross and i love it and <laughs> there are bugs walking around i think they're cockroaches i think it's hilarious they're driving cars they're making movies they're packing their suitcase and of course they're having affairs <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to see that? He actually used dried insect specimens. And it was beetles, grasshoppers, dragonflies, and whatever um, to do the stop-motion puppets portraying all of these characters. Clearly, the mass public sort of made their decision that they prefer, you know, kind and rambunctious uh, anthropomorphized <laughs> creatures like Gertie instead of the wild, adulterous creatures from The Cameraman's Revenge. But this is totally, like a cult film and I feel like it especially feels like something like Terry Gilliam might have made or you see in other stuff like like Peter Jackson like Meet the Feebles or even like Team America you have to have a certain sensibility to your humor to get on board with this and it, not everybody is going to be down to see a couple of like roaches get into it but those that will will be so excited that this movie exists for them I was so excited <laughs> And so it's like, I can't imagine how much time it must have taken him planning it out. So like there's one bug in the background that's like crossing his legs or whatever, you know, at the same time that there's other things happening. So Jacques Hughes, 1919 uh, by Abel Gantz is to me really like the finest of the epic films that came out of that time. So not only does the film have the big epic set pieces that's something like Kabiria, but it's an incredibly personal film. And there were epic films before Jacques, but it's the first to get, in my opinion, the formula correct with the mixture of the personal love triangle firmly at the center of the gigantic battle and war that's happening you know, in that regard it harkens back to like some of the russian novels the editing is uh unsurpassed for the era especially in the movie's pre-war sequences uh there's generous uses of pans close-ups split screen techniques and uh real war footage uh that his crew actually went and shot for like the big battles the scene in which edith is raped and they use only shadows 
to give you the impression of this tremendous, terrible event. It feels like something that's pulled directly from German expressionism. Um, and of course, um, the ending in which 2,000 soldiers rise from the dead, um, many of whom were actual real soldiers, only briefly home from the front, who would go and die in the front. Months later, they come back from the dead to accuse humanity and the people watching the movie. They're saying that you are complicit in this. It's uh, not only a profound and powerful image in its own right, but again, we talked about fourth wall breaking. He, he directly is bringing the audience into the narrative with that final sequence. There's something about watching a film now where you're like, I know it's a movie, you know, like, and, and to, to like see that it looks so gritty. It looks so real that I was like, those men look like they're dead. Like, you know, like that they have been killed in these trenches. And also the use of this sort of motif of like these skeletons, like dancing and stuff and showing, you know, just the horrors of war. One thing that I, that I don't think we mentioned yet, but it is the first zombie film. No matter not, what you think I is going to happen in the last act of the movie, this is definitely not that. It's yeah. not, I mean, that's crazy. I never heard of this zombie movie and the amazing shot in the title sequence. They spell out the title sequence in people. I've never seen that before. It, it's my first experience with Gantz's work. I haven't seen Napoleon. And these are not light films. You know, we talk about entry points to the era, and this is definitely not an entry point. <laughs> This, this is advanced subject matter. It does drag at points. It did feel like it got a bit repetitive at times, but it, it was definitely an impressive, impressive but repetitive work. I wonder if some of the repetition and some of the like dragging of it had something to do with like trying to recreate the feeling of being in this war that like was like sure. an unending experience if you are interested there's he actually remade his own film mm -hmm, gans went on to remake the film in the 30s on the eve of world war ii and i actually feel like that film is a slightly tighter version so th it's definitely worth checking out if you liked this and uh, one other thing that i think is interesting is the price tag on this film i mean he got a lot of people like soldiers and he was you know got this archival footage which is crazy but basically a little over a half a million french francs and that would translate to today's money uh in american dollars 84.5 million so that's an impressive number for how much they spent on the film but it would go on to profit six times that number within four years well that leads us i think very directly into beth's yeah. next pick if we want to jump into this yeah. world war feature yeah, so this is the second Charlie Chaplin film, so nominated, um, so Shoulder Arms. So this also comes in between Charlie Chaplin's, like, trying to figure out his, like, movement between short films into feature films. So this has, like, an episodic-type feeling to it rather than, like, a straight narrative. It was a very controversial film, you know, to make a comedy about war. There is truth that you can find within the comedy or in between the lines of the comedy that I think it makes it a precursor to things like MASH or other comedic films that are about war. And then also the fact that everyone told him, like, do not do this. This is a bad idea. And he was still like, you know what, I'm going to do it and was 
wasn't deterred and it ended up being a very popular film. So that's why I nominated Shoulder Arms. Yeah, the war was on at the time he made it. Mm -hmm. So you got to be talking about things that are going on today, especially as a comedian. And the other thing I think is interesting about this film, this is the second film released not under United Artists, the distribution company, but under Chaplin's studio that he built that was in the middle of the Orange Groves back when Hollywood was just a rural town that was still being built is right off Sunset Boulevard. Well, and of course, you know, it's hard to not compare it to a later war film that he would make where he yes. talks about other <laughs> German dictators. Dictators. So, yeah. yeah. This is the other thing I could be a first for the film. Um, it was all just a dream, you know, in the end. Um, I don't think it needed that, but it was kind of funny that that's <laughs> how it ends. There is actually, I feel like, quite a bit of sort of camera technique um, that Chaplin is refining in this film as well. Like, there's a really mm-hmm. good dolly in the trenches. Yep. You know, something that would become so iconic for World War One movies. He was starting to discover things that could only be cinema. That couldn't just be shown in front of you like uh, some of the earlier tramp gags that you could see on a theater stage Mm -hmm. or anywhere. These were things that took editing to make the joke happen. Yeah, like when he he (laughs) goes to sleep under the water. I mean, that's like you can only do that by cutting to the next scene. Absolutely. Okay, I think we got one more one more film left. Jason. So to continue on with our theme of slapstick comedians here at the end. Um, I chose, uh, as an alternative to uh, Charlie Chaplin, Spring Fever starring Harold Lloyd. Um, When people talk about the big three of silent comedians, you know, they always talk about Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and Harold Lloyd, usually in that order. And while I love all three of them, uh, I do feel in a lot of ways Harold Lloyd is the one that is most identifiable. The Little Tramp is great. The Great Stone Face is great. But it, I think it's harder for people to identify with those characters as opposed to Harold Lloyd's character of the boy. And particularly in Spring Fever, he works in an office. It's a beautiful day. He can see outside the window. And that's what this is. You know, he is trying to cut out of work on a beautiful spring day is so much of it is like you watch this and go, I wish I could do that. The hat gag is like, is definitely my favorite part of the movie. Why did they wear want to all wear hats? I assumed in case it rained do they, or they really hate sunshine. I mean, I don't know. Actually, I didn't know. But two months after shooting this short, Lloyd was at a promo shoot for something else. And he picked up a prop bomb and he lit it because he thought it was a prop. It was not a prop. It was a real bomb. He had done it to light his cigarette. And it exploded, mangled his right hand, blew up in his face. He lost a thumb, a forefinger, and badly burned his face. And um, But he still retained well, his sight. Why was there just um, a bomb? He knew that he was very lucky from from the situation. But I had no idea because, you know, he always looks good on screen and oh. stuff. That why was there a loaded gun? <laughs> like, what? Uh, uh, the, the, that, that event happened before he went on to make Safety Last, yeah. which is, you know, his most, I would say his most famous work, um, where he climbs up the side of a building. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed this one. I mean, we feel empathy for the tramp, you know. But um, but this character is something a little bit less caricature-esque. So we can kind of put ourselves in his shoes a little bit easier. Right. You feel for the tramp, but you feel like you could be Harold Lloyd's character. Yeah, exactly. Boy. I like his little kind of snotty attitude. Like he's like, um, exactly. he's more, he reminds me of a, 
The Fair Elvis help. Costello of silent movies, pretty much. <laughs> I good. can totally see that, yeah. <laughs> now it's time to vote. We'll be right back with one nomination from each guest, moving on to the final voting round. Enjoy this snippet of Brian Trahan's latest piece of music. You can find his music and listen via his Bandcamp website, briantrahan.bandcamp.com. tallying the votes we each ranked each other's nominations and each of the panelists will have one of our nominations advanced to the final round okay and the results are in the nominated film for beth chatelaine is birth of a flower moves on to the final round by um f percy smith the next nomination from my category that moves on to the next round is the Oyster Princess. Kevin Hinman's film that will move on to the next round is South. And then finally, panelist Jason Tucker's film that will move on to the next round will be Rhapsodia Satanica. And we can give one last reason why our film should be the recipient of the Fresh Air Award for the 1910s. I'll start off. So mine is The Oyster Princess. Ernst Lubitsch, who ended up winning an Academy Award, obviously for his amazing films that started in this decade. He made a a bunch of films in this decade, but I think this is the best one. And the reason is because of how it created comedies in film in a version that we see it still today. And his direction, use of close-ups, and directing large crews and showing what you can do, having fun in cinema, creating complicated plots that are easy to follow, and using elaborate sets and playing off of the rich are common themes that, that have never stopped. Actually, they just won another Academy Award the other day for The Great Beauty for a very similar kind of plot line. So that's my pitch, you guys. Uh, Jason, you're in the upper left. I'll go. The one that you chose out of my nominees was Rhapsodia Satanica, a truly remarkable film in my opinion. It was one of the first films with a synchronized soundtrack. The use of uh, color was groundbreaking at the time, not just 
tinted after the fact, but actually shot in color. The Italian cinema at the time was doing things that it feels like they weren't really doing in the U.S. Also, the kind of the story with the female lead being so prominent, that's stuff we just weren't seeing a whole lot in that decade. Uh, so yeah, The Birth of the Flower. This is a good example of how a film can push boundaries, how experimentation with different film techniques can move the industry forward. And The Birth of the Flower, utilizing time lapse for the first time. Basically, it's a number of time-lapsed flowers opening. It's very poetic. It's very beautiful. But again, it was like the first time that this technique had been used. So um, Frank Hurley's South uh, about Ernest Shackleton's expedition of the endurance is essentially the template for all nonfiction features to come. It takes a personal story of a man in an extremely dangerous environment, and it sets the template for things like, you know, touching the void and other, you know, people out in the wilderness type dramas, but also, you know, uses footage to enhance the narrative, such as paintings, stills, um, also the use of inner titles, and bringing the whole documentary into light, as well as the footage of the rare animals, which I feel like predates, you know, your planet Earths and Attenborough things. People will never get tired of seeing adorable animals on film. And so now we will have our final vote in just a moment. Uh, if you would like to learn more about silent films, uh, this is a time that we want to say, uh, please visit Niles Film museum.org if you enjoyed this episode please consider to check out the website or the museum in person thank you again to david kind for for writing that intro um, setting up this whole podcast on the historical piece and go visit or visit online and feel free there's a donate button on the website thank you and we will have our final vote in just a moment In fourth place, um, we have the nomination of the first time lapse in Birth of a Flower. We got fourth place. Um, and in third place, we have Rhapsodia Satanica. And so that leaves it to the final two. We have the Oyster Princess versus South. And the winner is South. South is the winner of the Fresh Air Award. I think it's a good choice. Uh, it was, yeah, it was definitely a good it choice. It was, it was a tough, like, tough. for almost all of them. Even the pre premiere or preliminaries was tough. I think, actually, Kevin's were the toughest for me to choose between. Yeah. I was really surprised that a nonfiction film ended up winning. I... If you had asked me before this, I definitely would not have thought The Collective would be a, non, a nonfiction movie. Just because I think of when we generally think of cinema today, we're always thinking about fiction features. I mean, the way that story was told is impressive. It's also one of the easiest ones to follow. I mean, it's totally amazing. And uh, the story is incredible. Uh, accompany it with the book, Endurance, and then you'll love it even more, I promise. And um, and I was Charlie surprised. Chaplin's films i'm surprised that none of those made the 
Well, again, you know, we're ranking them and it, it's a tough call sometimes. It's amazing. And I'm glad, like, oh, thank you guys so much for all, all your nominations. This is basically the end. Thank you again for, for all our listeners listening. This is the last episode of Four Wind Films Season 5 of Feature in a Short. We will have another Fresh Air Award at the end of next season and choose the winner for the Fresh Air Awards of the 1920s. And the forecast to look forward to, if you like these types of episodes, there is a lot more for you on the Four Wind Films website. We have a blog that is curated by Piper Worley, the amazing screenwriter, and she curates and gathers filmmakers from different locations outside of Four Wind Films as well as us in Four Wind Films. I just wrote a recent blog on how to budget a documentary film professionally to submit for grants and different things. So go to the website, check it out. Uh, If you would like to listen to another movie podcast, we'd love to recommend Undercast, where they pick an underrated movie and chat about it. Um, uh, You should definitely go check it out. Um, I was on an episode a little while ago, and they let me pick a movie that was underrated. I chose Death to Smoochie. So check out that episode where we talk about Robin Williams, my crush on Catherine Keener, and... (laughs) lot of other things uh go check it out uh wherever you get your podcast the podcast is called undercast if you would like our content be the first to learn about it by signing up for a newsletter now at fourwindfilms.com that's f-o-u-r-w-i-n-d-f-i-l-m-s.com thank you to our sound mixer brian trahan the theme song for this season was also his it is entitled This Monster, originally released under the name Sun Nectar at Bandcamp.com. Brian Trahan edited together all of our music for this episode as well. And thank you to my fiance, Laura Davi, who helped out with uh, events all year and hosting the last podcast episode. I'm signing off to season five of Feature in a Short. I will talk at you soon with a new theme song. See you later.